everyone. How's it going? I'm Chase Jarvis. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This show is where I sit down with the world's top creatives, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders and unpack actionable and valuable insights with the goal, the goal of helping you live your dreams in career, in hobby, and in life. My guest today is the inimitable Debbie Millman. Debbie has become a dear friend over the past, oh gosh, probably 18 months, 24 months, incredible human. She is the editorial and creative director of Print Magazine, but she has, maybe even more importantly, an insane track record going back decades in the field of design. She's the author of six books, um, including one, it's got a very straightforward title, but it is renowned, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. Um, she's also a really prolific design writer for the New York Times, for Fast Company, Design Observer. She chairs the Masters in Branding program at SVA, and she co-founded that with Stephen Heller, another legend in the design world in his own right. And she hosts the top design podcast on iTunes, long-running podcast called Design Matters. She's done over 250 episodes over like a 10-year window Legends in the design world on that show, uh, Michael Beirut, Stephen Heller, Chip Kidd, Massimo Vignelli, Malcolm Gladwell, etc., etc. You get the picture. That's just the biggest names, and those are some of the biggest headlines. What I love about Debbie, in addition to everything I've mentioned so far, is that there is a ton more I'm leaving out. I kind of feel terrible, but we'd be here, I don't know, for the next like 45 minutes if I just kept listing all of the badass stuff that she's done the bottom line is this. If you look up badass designer in the dictionary, you there'd be a picture of Debbie there, renowned in so many circles. Another thing I appreciate with Debbie is that despite all of these accomplishments, or I don't know, maybe, maybe even because of them, she is so humble and so thoughtful, so introspective. Um, a dedicated lifelong learner, not only of her craft, of the design world, but in personal development generally. She's someone who's never stopped looking in the mirror, um, and and continues to put forward her best self on a daily basis. She asks tough questions of her students, of her design peers, and she's very focused on staring down sort of the fears and shortcomings that so many of us run away from and how that can manifest itself in our work as creative. She's got an amazing class on Creative Live called A Brand Called You, but ultimately, the lesson here is to build a career like Debbie's or any other career for that matter, you have to be working on all of these things in parallel. You don't have to go deep on all of them, but these are things that you should be aware of. And that's what we got, what we really dive into in this episode, understanding that as a, as a professional creative or entrepreneur, your personal development and your crafts are so intertwined. I love Debbie's openness, her vulnerability, her wisdom, and I'm excited to share with you guys in the show today. If you guys like Brene Brown or Gretchen Rubin, El Luna, you are in for a treat. A couple other highlights. In this episode, we talk about confidence. She talks, this is super refreshing, I think, for, for a lot of us out there, says that confidence is overrated. This is something that, that is, it's an ongoing theme. There's probably a half a dozen really strong themes um, self-awareness, confidence in one's work. What she talks about in this episode is how confidence is created by repeatedly doing something, but if you've never done something, how in the hell could you have confidence? You might have confidence as a human, but what about confidence in that thing? 
In her words, confidence is, is, I guess, the easy part. It's finding the courage to do the thing that you don't have confidence in that can be a game changer. She talks about not only the importance of lifelong learning, but the flip side of that same coin, importance of teaching, why greats like Milton Glaser said the most important thing he ever did was teach. It's incredible to be the teacher and to still learn, despite, you know, whether you're in a formal or informal environment. Uh, and I think Debbie does a great job touching on that in this episode. And why even these crazy, overachieving, hyperachieving legends still struggle with feelings of unworthiness or a lack of, you know, kind of goes back to confidence. But I want this to be something that sticks with you. Everyone is dealing with this stuff. Everyone is coping with it. It's a universal thing that's rarely talked about. It's critical that you put your own mechanisms in place to keep it from sabotaging your future success. We go deep on that. And I know you're going to love this episode. So with that, let's get into the show. But before we do, <laughs> a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest hub for online creative education. Education in photo, video, art design, music and audio, and the ability to make a living and a life in those disciplines. It's the highest quality, highly curated classes taught by the world's top experts. We're talking Pulitzer Prize winners, Oscar winners, Grammy Award winners, New York Times bestselling authors, and the best entrepreneurs of our time. Names like Richard Branson, Mark Cuban, Ariana Huffington are on the platform. And you get classes taught from guys like Tim Ferriss, Lewis Howes, uh, Ramit Sethi. Again, I could list uh, a thousand other names of the top photographers, designers, musicians, the best in class. You get it. Now, right now, if you're familiar with me and my work, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. Isn't that a company that you started, Chase? Well, yes, it is. In fact, Creative Live makes this entire podcast possible. And in fact, all of my longstanding Chase Jarvis Live shows. Creative Live has millions of students around the world more than two billion minutes of education have been consumed on that video platform so you know that's a little bit of the sort of the what and the how behind creative live but here's the why which i think is so critical creative live exists to help you live your dreams in career hobby and life in short i started creative live with a bunch of really committed friends because we saw a, a big need in the world we wanted to help our peers and friends and, and folks out there in the world transition to new careers live new dreams take the leap if you will into an entirely different sort of direction where you can leave that job, maybe your job with the man, and strike out on your own. I also saw my peers in the photo and design world needing to sort of up their skills and get ahead. And I saw friends who were happily working at great companies but wanted to pursue their hobby to a next level that you know, might someday parlay into a side hustle. So we built that platform. Uh, these classes at Creative Live are the most highly and authentically produced of any of the online video platforms you'll experience. The top experts, it's all shot with four to eight cameras, all in HD, beautifully presented and accessible on desktop, tablet, mobile. You know I stand for quality and that's what Creative Live uh, puts out. To that end, I have also taken it upon myself to curate a handful of my very favorite classes and mix them in with some of the top performing classes on Creative Live. And I'll bake that into a landing page called creativelive.com slash hustle just for you. 
this community listens to our podcast here. So you should go there and you should check that out as a special thank you for being a podcast listener. If you find a class that you love, either from the ones that I've curated or elsewhere on the site, and you want to buy it, during checkout, enter the code CHASER. That's my name plus an R, just C-H-A-S-E-R. And do that during checkout and you'll get 25% off your order. Uh, I think that's awesome and I hope you do too. So thanks very much for checking it out. Let me know what you think. Now that's it for the sponsors. Uh, Now let's get into the show. So, so happy you're here. Oh, I'm so thrilled. I'm going to give some context. So we are here. Well, we've been friends for some time. We've been on Creative Live before. We met, I don't know, a year and a half or so ago. At the How Conference, yes, remember? at the How Conference yes. in, in Hotlanta. Um, and we're here this weekend in particular because of something that you put together for Print Magazine. You want to give a little yes. bit of background on that? Well, uh, last year I became the editorial and creative director of Print Magazine. Amazing. And we, well, it's sort of an interesting, there's a really interesting backstory. So when I graduated college, my dream was to work at a magazine. But it wasn't just any magazine. I wanted to work at Vanity Fair magazine. Of course. Now, this was back in the 80s, and it was pre-Tina Brown. Mm -hmm. It was a magazine at the time that was really more of a literary magazine with a bit of a focus on art. So one of the first covers they ever had was of David Hockney in a boat, and all you saw were his shoes and his socks and the bottom of his pants, like a rowboat. It was beautiful. Wow. Probably didn't sell a lot of copies say, on the news. I'm wondering what Sock Magazine today <laughs> But conceptually interesting. And, and at the time, I was the editor of the Arts and Features section of my college newspaper, which meant that I not only edited the paper, but I also designed it. And wow. that was when I first became a designer. And so in an effort to get this job at Vanity Fair, I mocked up covers. And I did these sort of very German expressionist Vanity Fair covers. I sent my portfolio in as you did back yeah. then. I dropped it off. And miraculously, I got a call back. Charles Churchward was the creative director at the time. And I got a call back. But I didn't get a call back to meet with Charles Churchward. I got a call back to meet with the Human Resources Department. Now, uh, it was the mid-'80s. Okay. Bow blouses were in full fashion. <laughs> I'm, I'm going right there right okay. now in my mind. I get my it. mother was a seamstress and made me all my career clothes. <laughs> Literally career clothes? Career clothes. Oh, that's amazing. And I went to my interview in a little blue bolero jacket with a bow blouse with little pin dots and sort of A-line skirt, flat patent leather shoes, wow. slip-ons. And I sat across from a woman who looked like she was one day going to star in a movie titled The Devil Wears Prada. That's what they looked like even back yeah. then. She had this beautiful shift on, beautiful thin arms, a bob. And I was this like chubby Jewish girl from Long Island wearing a bolero jacket. 
I did not get the job. <laughs> but you stood out, probably. You stood out. I, I don't think so. All right. Yeah, I stood out like, who is that fat Jewish girl from <laughs> Long Island? Um, and I didn't get the job. And I ended up getting a job at a cable magazine and then a, a rock magazine. But I'd always harbored this fantasy to work at Vanity Fair. And I started working at print about 12 years ago as a columnist first and now most recently as creative and editorial director. And one of the first things I wanted to do when I became, when I, when I got this position was a riff on Vanity Fair's famous Hollywood issue. Get after him. You're like, I'm going to go there right away. I wanted to do that. And that was what last year's? So last year we did the print Hollywood issue, colon, New York. And we got 55 of some of the world's greatest designers that happened to be in New York a lot to come to the School of Visual Arts where they were donating the space for us for the weekend to shoot all of these incredible designers. And we got Jessica Walsh and Timothy Goodman and you name it, they were there. Sure. And it went really well. We had, I think, a 37-page portfolio in the magazine. Wow. Chip Kidd was on the cover. It was a record epic issue for us. And we decided back then, if it did well, we wanted to do another issue the following year, which is this year, in San Francisco. So the Hollywood issue, San Francisco. And here we are. And you graciously oh. have donated your space. We have 60 designers coming through the next two days, and we are going to be photographing the great designers, illustrators, technology, entrepreneurs. If they're, if they're something, they're going to be here this weekend. The list is super impressive. It's and it's so well curated. <laughs> you did such a nice job. I'm thrilled to co-shoot this with John Keatley, who's a good friend of mine from yeah. Seattle, amazing photographer. The fact that we get to do also shoot some video interviews with these folks to make available. Yeah. Um, a, thank you for including me. Oh. B, I hope you continue to do this. It's going to be a staple for the magazine for sure, and we've had such so much fun working with the, the folks at print. Um, and we're just getting started. Like this, It ramps up really big yeah. starting tomorrow morning at Absolutely. like, what, 8 a.m. or something, something like Something ridiculous, yeah. Thank goodness I'm a New York time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, well, I would like to shift the conversation, if we can, to um, that, that first time when you realized that you could actually make a living and a life doing what you wanted to do. Uh, last month. <laughs> <laughs> you think I jest. <laughs> well, then tell that story. I want to know. Well, this is, this is an interesting time in my life right now. Um, as, as I mentioned, I graduated college in, in the early 80s, mid-80s, and I had a degree in English literature and a minor in Russian literature. And I often wow. joke now that I have a degree in reading. Dostoevsky and all yeah. that. Yeah, oh yeah, all, all the great Russian writers, Dostoevsky, Gogol, Tolstoy, you name it, Oblomov. Wow. I mean, it's amazing There's what I There's a lot I, of very long books. Yes. <laughs> and when I graduated, I knew that I wanted to live in Manhattan. And I, though I'm a native New Yorker, I had never lived in Manhattan before. I had lived in all the boroughs except the Bronx and Manhattan, so Manhattan was number one on the list. And I didn't want to be in a situation where I would feel like I was 
unstable where I lived. I needed to know that I, pay, I could pay my rent. I, there was no option to go back home, so yeah. to speak. And so I lived in a fourth floor tenement walk-up. It was quite a, an interesting apartment. It was a railroad flat. I had to walk through. I had two roommates. They were a couple. And I had to walk through their bedroom to get to mine, huh. which was uncomfortable well, at I think times. They I got, that. Isn't that a closet? <laughs> <laughs> like a room off a room? A room like. off a room. It was a, it was a straight line, and you had okay. to go through one room to get to the next okay. to the next. And if they were, you know, doing what couples do, mm -hmm. I'd sometimes get stuck on either end, which made for difficulties. Um, but it was an interesting time, mm -hmm. and it was New York in the 80s. And the only way that I felt that I could be both creative and pay my rent was to be a commercial artist as opposed to a fine artist or an illustrator or a writer or a painter or any number of the things that I really, really with all my heart wanted to do. Um, and so I launched this career in design, which turned quite by accident out of desperation really into a career in branding in my early 30s. So about 10 years after I graduated, I stumbled into a job in branding had I known that that would be what I was going to pursue, I probably would have spent a lot more time paying attention to the things that I was doing in my father's pharmacy because as I was growing up, I worked in his pharmacy. Oh, I love that. Which is where I sort of learned my osmosis about branding, why people would buy the things they did, why they'd choose the things they did. I was endlessly fascinated by that, not knowing that it was something I could ever pursue as a career. Um, but always the lead gene in my life was self-sufficiency. That's a powerful motivator. It, right? Well, it was a powerful motivator, but if you don't ever feel like you are entitled or deserve self-sufficiency, no matter how much you get, you never feel safe. And I learned that through amassing an enormous amount of things that I thought would give me a sense of safety and security, which in fact never did. It's a hedonistic treadmill when yeah. you're looking for outside things to provide something that's a very internal state. And I guess one of the sort of, one of the defining moments in my life was ultimately coming into branding quite by accident, ultimately helping grow a company for over two decades that I was ultimately able to sell. And at that point, everybody in my life was like, okay, well, you've been talking about doing all these other things. Now you have as much safety and security as you'll ever need. But if it's not an internally driven sense of purpose, yeah. it's nothing outside is gonna give you that. And so it took me a whole slew of years after that to finally, finally say, Maybe you have to start thinking about if not now, when? If not now, when? And so I was at the very tail end of making that decision when I was offered the CEO job of the company that I sold to Omnicom. I was offered the Sterling. CEO at Sterling, Sterling Brands, the company that'll always be close to my heart. I was offered the CEO position and thought, well, should, maybe I should take that. You know, it's a big job, and I'm a woman, and you know, Powerful take it for the and team, and, and maybe I should do that. Maybe that. Maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Maybe this is the thing that I'm supposed to just do. 
and it took me four months to decide my, the then CEO, Simon Williams, my partner, um, who was the founding partner of the company, said to me, Debbie, if anything takes you four months to decide, you probably don't want to do it. Good advice. Yeah. And so finally, after 22 years, I left. And in, on November 1st was my first day of non-employment at Sterling. And since then, so what has that been, three months? Not even. I'm figuring out a whole new chapter in my life and doing all of these interesting things that I never expected to even be doing. So, you know, one of the things that I've always, I've realized now that I've contended with is living my life from a point of view of scarcity. Yeah. So not only am I searching for security, but I'm also thinking that any opportunity that I'm being presented with is my last chance for doing that. Last chance for love, last chance for success, last chance for actualization, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And what I never anticipated was I thought, well, if I stop doing this, this will be all I have left. Never thinking, well, if you stop doing this, other things could happen. You know, you're not living yeah. in a cave. And so it's been an interesting period of my <laughs> life now to start to think about options. How, help the folks at home understand how someone with your level of aptitude, sophistication, success on every external measure can have the dialogue that you just shared with us about needing external validation and about worthiness. And this has been the biggest struggle for me and the biggest path of self-discovery in my adult life. And I feel like this is my opportunity to learn from you and probably the folks at home. Like, can you talk to me about some of those key levers that created that so that people can realize that they're in that? Because you have to realize that problem before you can fix it. Oh yeah, I think you have to realize this, and I don't, I'm not even gonna say that it's a problem. I was gonna say, if I could take any word back right there, it'd be a problem. This characteristic, it's just or the mindset. It's the human condition. Yeah. It's the human condition, and yeah. I have become a lot more comfortable with that condition after conducting all the interviews I've conducted with creative people. And the first hint of this came when I was putting my first book together, which is the world's worst title. It's called How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. It was the first book opportunity I was offered. I was offered this book by, by the publisher with the title. And I was so worried that if I said, I can't, do, I can't write a book about how great designers are supposed to think. Everybody thinks differently. And I thought, oh, if I say no, I might never get another book deal. And so I went back to them and I said, how about if I interview designers and reveal how they think? And everybody might have a different point of view, but then you have this wonderful opportunity to sort of get into the heads of different people. And what I very quickly found was the greatest people that I was interviewing, Milton Glaser, Massimo Vignelli, Stefan Sackmeister, um, Paula Scher, Michael Beirut. I interviewed, I think, 21 designers for this book. Incredible, incredible posse there. <laughs> All but two revealed over the course of the interview that they suffered from, in some cases, debilitating issues of worthiness yep. to just regular episodes of feeling unworthy. Um, every single person I spoke to had this 
condition, except for two, Massimo and Milton. When I interviewed both Massimo and Milton, they were in their 80s. I think by the time you're in your 80s, it's like, okay, the gig is up. This is who I am. I gotta figure it out. And, and just, this is, just take it or leave it, basically. So <laughs> Everybody insightful. else, the greatest of the great. And subsequently, since then, I've, I've interviewed close to 300 people on Design Matters. And it's not a show about design anymore, about designers. It's about how people design their lives. How, how does a creative person create the arc of a life? What is their trajectory? How do you make the decisions to do what you do? And everyone struggles with this. Isn't it weird? It's like if you could just pull back the blanket and say, hey, can we just get this stuff out yeah. in the open? You know Brene Brown? Yes. Yeah, Brene, so she's a friend and has done more for me and I think for sort of pop culture and specifically she has a primarily women audience, but more men than I know Oh, in yeah. the past year have been sort of affected by her work, which is, if you don't are familiar with her work, it's about vulnerability. And shame. And shame. And the, the concept that we have to hide and protect and pretend yeah. all those things because we think it will show strength when in reality that is our biggest gift to the world and that's when you give that, that's what you, you get those things yeah. that are missing in your life. When she came out with that TED talk, my head exploded. Yeah. And that was what, 2009, something I think? Like something that. Yeah, like that. Yeah, one of the top 10 TED Talks of all time. So it's been seven or eight years since then. I show that podcast on the first day of classes with my undergrads. I've been doing that since it came out. Yes. So I have seen it now, like maybe 16, 20, maybe more because I've watched it on my own as well. Sure. I feel like I know it by heart, and every time I watch it, she astounds me. Every time I watch it, when I think I know it by heart, she says something that, wait, I, I didn't hear that the last 15 times. So much courage. But this, the, the notion that to be able to live wholeheartedly, you have to be willing to risk your heart is something that it's taken me my whole life to figure out. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, when you ask me the question, it's like, I feel like I'm still doing that. I love the answer. It's beautiful. It really is. And the fact that there is no finish line to this game, like that, to me, that's a great way, you know, a great way to think of underscoring what you've just said. And I know, uh, you know Tim and I, uh, sorry, Tim Ferriss, we were just spending some time with Tim. Tim. He's across the hall. We're at Creative Tim. Live. Love that guy. Yeah, we went to dinner last night. And that's what, me and I talk about stuff like yeah. that. Like, there's no finish line, and it's so weird to, especially you know, in Tim's case and in your case, representing aspirations for you know millions of people around the world. And if they only knew that at dinner, we're talking about how to try and figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that part of what we have to contend with now is what I call um, living in a 140 character culture, and we are able to communicate with such speed and immediacy that it becomes really difficult to see how a career or an aspiration needs to take time. Mm -hmm. And I, I say it all the time now, anything worthwhile takes a long time. Yeah. And in as much as I can look back on my life with hindsight and say, my 20s were really a decade of experiments and rejection and failure. I wouldn't change that now because 
I feel that that helped prepare me for the immense gratitude <laughs> that I have for what I have been able to do now, three decades later. And the longer it takes, I think the longer it lasts. And I would hate to think that if I had really made it big in my 20s that I'd have had to have sustained it all, this, all these years. I don't think I could have. I wouldn't have had the mental tenacity to be able to know what it would take in the same way that I would have gotten killed at Vanity Fair. <laughs> the universe has a way of providing <laughs> for it, doesn't imagine? it? Can you imagine? Oh. I think back on my bow blouses and think, I would have gotten killed. Yeah. I would have, I, I, I it wouldn't have, thank goodness I didn't get that job. And at the time I was, you know, just shattered, crestfallen, yeah. devastated, inconsolable. The universe has a way of providing. You've yes. mentioned so many things I want to touch on in just that sort of first in, uh, introductory salvo there. We talked, you mentioned books, you mentioned Design Matters, you mentioned Sterling, you mentioned like what a, an amazing career, but let's, like if we can tuck into that a little bit. Yeah. Your first book is How to Think. How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. Pulitzer Prize winning title, not. But it's still, it's still my best selling book, so it, there was something there about. There was some wisdom yeah, in there. Yeah. But five other ones also, six total? Six total, but they're really different kinds of books. So I have two books of interviews that are really um, very much based on the kind of work that I do with Design Matters. So they're very in-depth, long-form, intimate portraits of the way people think. And design their life. And design their lives, yeah. Then I have two books that are sort of textbooks. One is called Brand Bible, and that's a book that I did with my first year of graduate students when I started the graduate program at the School of Visual Arts and Branding. I had an opportunity from a wonderful woman named Emily Potts, who um, was then working as the acquisitions editor at Rockport. She offered me this opportunity to do a book with my students, and that's called Brand Bible, and it's a book about how to create and sustain brands. Um, and then another textbook is called Essential Principles of Graphic Design. And it's really funny to see these sort of textbooks in different languages in different parts of the world. I get images all the time from people that have the Japanese version or the Russian version. And then I have two books that I've done of illustrated essays, and that's really my personal work. The first is called Look Both Ways, Illustrated Essays on the Intersection of Life and Design. And the most recent is called Self-Portrait as Your Traitor. And that one is probably the darkest of the six. It's my most recent. I, my next question was, can we talk about that? Sure. Yeah, uh, so you yourself called it dark, not my word, yours. It is dark. Why is it dark? What does it represent? And why should we care? Well, I don't know that anybody should care, but if they care to care, it's, um, it's a very intimate look at the construction and deconstruction of intimate relationships and not just significant other type relationships. Mm -hmm. It's how do you have a relationship with a family member or how do you have a relationship with somebody who's um, cruel or abusive to you. And so it's, it's a story that's told through visual essays that are all made by hand. This is a book that I did 
that other than the folios and the copyright information is completely made by hand. And then it was then photographed by a wonderful photographer named Brent Taylor, um, who did the Hollywood issue in New York for us. Nice. So he and I have done quite a lot of work together. Um, and it's made with materials, it's made with um, lucite, with adhesive letters, with felt, and then a lot of drawing as well. And it's told through vignettes, um, some of which are in the first person, some of which aren't, but all sort of take you through the arc of the deconstruction of, of relationships. Is it all autobiographical? Yes. Did you find a lot of power in creating something like that? Did you feel like you shared something that you needed to? And do you feel like that's a mechanism to, to get powerful art out in the world? Or what was the impetus behind creating it? The impetus to creating the work was really just self-expression and the incredible gift that I was given after I published Look Both Ways. So Look Both Ways was the result of a class that I took with Milton Glaser back in 2005. And in that class, he asked the designers that were in the class to construct a vision for what the perfect day in their life could be five years from now, from then. So it would have been for wow. me 2010. What a question. Yeah. And this is a design class. This is a design class. And so he had us, and ordinarily, if he were still teaching the class, I wouldn't be allowed to talk about this. There was like this fight club pact that nobody was allowed to talk about what you did in the class. But Milton sadly has stopped teaching this class. He did it for, I think, 40 years. He said oh it was the most God. important thing he did. And now I understand why, because of the influence that 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 specific essay has on people's lives. I remember you told me about this essay recently when we had dinner. It was like something I walked away going, wow. Yeah. Like the most important thing, one of the most important guys in design has yeah. ever done. Yeah, the guy that class. did the iHeart New York logo is saying that the most important thing he's done is teach. Wow, beautiful. So he asked us to take a leap of faith and create this vision for what our lives could be. And I put my whole heart into doing this essay, mostly because it gave me permission to fantasize. What he was really doing, and I didn't realize it at the time, was he was giving permission to everybody that was doing this to declare what they wanted. Yeah. Declare what you want. Make it concrete. And I spent a lot of time, I wrote it in my journal, it was like eight or nine pages of handwritten, and I had, then I made a list of everything that I'd put in the essay so that I'd have it really organized because I love organization. And one of them was to do a book of illustrated essays. I hadn't done any illustrated work at all at that point in my life for over 10 years. Wow. And in an effort to try to make it happen, I sent a letter to a woman named Megan Patrick who was then the acquisitions editor at F&W Media and I created an essay. I wrote it, wrote, I designed it, photographed it, sent it to Megan, never heard anything. And then I thought, you know, she didn't say no. Maybe I should just ping her and get a f sort of final answer. And I wrote her and I said, hey Megan, I sent you this thing five, six weeks ago, did you get it? She wrote me back instantly, no, I never got it. I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe it was because it was too big. I don't know. Maybe it went to a spam box. I sent it again. 
she got it. She said, it's a really interesting idea. It's not really in our wheelhouse of books, but I'm gonna present it to the editorial board and you never know. She did, she got back to me, they accepted it. I remember I wrote her back and said, it's a miracle. And she wrote back, yes, Debbie, it really is. <laughs> and so that was my first book. Now, of, of illustrated essays, what happened was because I had been so rusty doing that kind of work, over the course of producing the work for the book, I got better, just oh, like you would yeah, as an athlete. Yeah. You know, you start doing push-ups by yeah. the time, you know, you do one and then you could do 100, but it takes time. And I, I started getting better and more comfortable and looser with the work mm -hmm. to a point where F&W ended up having to cut me off because I kept redoing the essays. <laughs> like I, I, I just want to do one I over. Just want, just one, one more. more. Yeah. And like, no, and that's it. No need it, to be done. perfect, just one more. And I wanted to keep my chops. And so I asked them if I could do an online visual essay every month on Prince website because I was already doing my magazine column. And they said, sure, if you want to. And so that's what I did. And then Gary Lynch, the publisher, after I'd done about three years worth, so over 30, wow. wrote me and said, maybe we should make this into another book. And that's how the other book came about. It was hard putting it all together and realizing that I was revealing a lot about myself, but not everybody knew that it was, I mean, people could assume if they wanted. Yeah, and sure. the most intimate essay was really hard to read. <laughs> I can imagine. So what I did was, you'll love this because it's a photography story. I did, I think, 10 or 11 panels of adhesive mailbox type. Okay. And I wrote the story on these um, Lucite panels. Wow. And we photographed the panels, one on top of the other, on top of the other. So the whole thing builds, and then you see the first one, you can read the first one perfectly. The second one, you sort of see the blurring of the type coming through, the way that the photographer, the, the way Brent lit it was that it sort of lit from behind. And then by the time you got to the end, all 11 panels were behind the first panel. So it was a real challenge. You had to really want to read it if you wanted to read it. And I've only had a couple of people say, is that autobiographical? Because I didn't use my name. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So there are so many things embedded in what you just said. Not hearing no, assuming that it meant no, and then catching yourself. Like, wait a minute, I didn't hear a no. I didn't hear a no. Even when I hear, you know, the one thing, I'm super sensitive and, and have taken rejections really hard to a point where if I get rejected, I won't try that specific thing again. But what I find is that it takes me a while and I sort of regroup. I mean, it might take a decade and I'll yes. regroup. But I tend to then sort of come around <laughs> from a different direction to try to sort of make it happen. But I also, when I'm told no outright, I tend to push a little bit. Would you reconsider? Maybe. How about this? What about this way? But just you sharing that is so powerful that one of the world's top thinkers, doers in design has that mentality, both the one that fears and feels rejection and then the one that, wait a minute, there's this sort of a real calculus that I'm like, wait, I, either I didn't hear no or I, I heard a sort of no or I'm going to push. Like that, there's a dialogue 
yeah. regardless, even the content is like, it's, it's almost less important, but that you, Debbie Millman, have that dialogue. So that's, like, I want the world to know that because that will help you at home push through that thing. Thank you very much for oh, sharing that. My pleasure, anytime. So, books, now let's go to the podcast. Okay. Design Matters, <laughs> incredible. Like one of the top podcasts of 2015. Yes. Um, millions of downloads. Um, that was amazing. The that most was... incredible guests. And you, I think you told me that you get to do this from your office at, at, at SVA. At well, I started, I started doing it in my office at Sterling because I started doing the podcast in 2005. I'm about to have my 12th anniversary of the show. Nice. And Stamina, people. Stamina. Yeah, I, I, I have both... It's both a good quality and a bad quality. I can sometimes stay in things for too long just okay. because I'm so dogged about trying to make it right. But mostly that's been mostly that's been a really positive thing. Um, but I was cold called one day about doing a radio, an internet radio show on a network called Voice America. And I had been writing for Speak Up in a piece that I had written with Mark Kingsley sort of went a little bit viral the first time that ever had happened to me. And I was cold called by this radio network. And they wanted me to do a show about branding, which made sense. You know, I was the president of a brand uh, consultancy. Right. But I didn't want to do that because my whole life was at that point about branding. And I wanted to do something that had no commercial value, zero commercial value. I wanted to do something pure and full of soul. And so I said to them, well, I'll do brand some branding, but can I also really focus it on design? And they were like, okay. And I thought they were going to be paying me to do the show, but I had to pay them for the airtime. And the airtime was sort of like having a show produced by the producers of Wayne's World. Uh, <laughs> Wayne and Garth were the producers of my show. And it sounds like that. But I, I moved over to... Um, the show. I moved the show over to Design Observer. I was invited by the late, great Bill Drentel. Asked me if I wanted to bring it to Design Observer with the proviso that I had to improve the sound quality. Quality. Yeah, you got it. That's one thing. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it certainly ha you have to right. be able to hear what the person's exactly. saying. Exactly. So I can, Wayne and Garth probably didn't have that mastered. <laughs> so you brought that inside of Design so Observer. I was, incredible. Well, Design Observer started to distribute the show mm -hmm. on their site. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was building this new program mm -hmm. at the School of Visual Arts with Stephen Heller, the great design critic and educator and Amazing. the former art director of the New York Times for 30 years. He had offered me this opportunity to create a master's in branding program at the School of Visual Arts. Wow. And I would known through Alice Twemlow, who had a program that she had started in design criticism, that they had a little podcast booth in the studio in their studio. Uh -huh. So I went to the president of SVA, David Rhodes, an incredible man named David Rhodes, and I said, any chance I could have a podcast studio too? I can end up doing my podcast in front of the students. And I didn't get a little closet, I got a studio. He really made me a beautiful studio. There's so, a great picture of you with your feet up on the desk yes. in the studio. I yes. love that John shot Madeir, He's he I did a great job with that photograph. Um, and. That's when I started doing the show at the School of Visual Arts. So the way that the studio is situated is I have a soundproof booth, but there's a big window and the sound is broadcast outside of the booth. And so all of my students, both grad and undergrad, get to watch 
me do the interview, sort of like inside the actor's studio. Yeah, that's exactly what it's and, and the students, you know, some of the students have gotten jobs from people that have come through to do an episode of Design Matters. Um, but this show was an accidental thing. You know, I got a cold call. And at the time, I was sort of feeling like my soul was being overrun with fast-moving consumer goods and yeah. everything that you could get in a supermarket or a drugstore and just felt like I needed to be able to keep that part of myself alive. And it's turned into the greatest gift of my life. And a gift for so many people. It's very, very powerful um, to have you in your ears and saying so many of these things. And I want to reflect on the, the fact that some of your biggest mentors, goals, and successes were teaching, and here you are teaching. So there's this, you know, the circle of life. Yeah. Um, you you teach about branding, but you also teach about the brand of you. Mm -hmm. Well, which, that was my class here, yeah, which I love doing at Creative Live. Incredible class. Um, I, I can say with zero hesitation, that is the class that I have watched, that I watched most in 2016, and you probably, I think you delivered in the third quarter. August 31st. There you go. Really? It's, yes, it really? is one that I've watched the most, and it is the one that I see the most on screens that I walk around here. I think Jill, our, our VP of Marketing, said that she watched the entire, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but Jill, I'm, I'm outing you. She watched the, she, she said she watched the entire thing last weekend, I think. Really? And it's just, oh, wow. I think the, you know, I don't know what it is. It's this beautiful alchemy that you have of your delivery, so many examples, just great cultural reference, and so just, I thank want to you. pat you on the back thank and say you. it's well, just... Well, thank you for yeah. giving me the opportunity to do, to do it. I really loved doing it. It was it was a, a really, really transformative experience for me well, to so be the... with those people and like sort of working with them and being able to sort of see in their eyes that they were Well, there's learning. some 8 or 10,000 people that have taken the class, so I like to think that it's working. Um, so when you think about career contributing as a writer, um, as making design matters. Um, do you see either of those things stopping, changing, waning? What about your, your, your career as a, a mentor, as a teacher? Mm -hmm. You want to do more of that? Like what, what, well, I still teach um, undergrads. I was teaching undergrads way before I started the graduate program. I was teaching for Richard Wilde at the School of Visual Arts in his advertising and design program. And when, then when I got the master's program, he just assumed I was going to stop teaching the undergrads. But I felt like, isn't that sort of like when somebody cuter asks you out, you can't, like it's not <laughs> right morally. So I just felt like, I have to still teach the undergrads, and I also enjoy teaching undergrads because they teach me about what's important to them. And so I have loved being able to watch my undergrads then go out and make a difference in the world. I mean, some of my students, Joe Hollier, who created the light phone, I mean, he's unbelievable. Yeah. He's, he's my first student that I had as an undergrad that's been on Design Matters. That's what he's become. Wow. Santiago Carrasquilla, he's, um, I mean, these men are amazing. The students of Anna Latham, I mean, these, these, they're, it, it just, my heart bursts when I think about what I get to be able to witness and observe as my students 
The humility with which you approach that, you're talking about learning so much from the people that you clearly are giving these amazing, or well, a, a I'm huge, just helping yeah. them find, I mean, this is what I try to do with these students in, in my class, and I do this in my graduate class as well. What I find that people in their 20s experience is very similar to what I was experiencing in the early mid 80s. I came out of school thinking, I'm not smart enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not connected enough, I have no money, I have nothing enough, including the safety thing. I was telling myself all of those things. Nobody was saying, you can't do that, Debbie, you can't do that, Debbie, you can't do that, Debbie. I was doing that. I was editing what was possible in my life before I was even considering that it was possible. And I see all of my students, I ask them on the first day of class, what are you afraid of? Mediocrity, not being able to fulfill my potential, regret. They're all, and they're in their 20s, and this is what they're worried about now in their lives. So I'll spend a semester helping to try to reroute the neural pathways in their brains that make them feel like they have to start curtailing what is possible for them just by giving them the tools that they could use to go out and get the job of their dreams. And now I do the same exercise that Milton did with us. I give them 10 years though, since they're much younger. <laughs> I put that kind of pressure on them, right? 10 years, 10 years. Your 10 year remarkable life plan. I was talking with Tim about that on his podcast as well. And I get emails now that I've been teaching. I've been teaching undergrad for about 13 years. So I get letters from people, from people that are like, Debbie, the essay, everything happened. And I'm like, yeah, Milton, like he, he knew what he was doing with that thing. It's magic. It's the declaration of what you want. It's once you are able to stand for it. This is what I am declaring. This is what I am standing for. This is what I want. Do you know El Luna? Of course. El. Oh, that's right. She's going to be a part of the El Luna. You get so, what you, you get what you must have, yes. not what you should have. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and then declaring. this deserve thing, and it's the confidence thing. Confidence is overrated. I learned this from Danny Shapiro, the great writer. We were talking about confidence, and she was like, confidence is really overrated. And I'm like, what, what? She's like, yeah, most, most confident people, like overly confident people, confident people are kind of, kind of noxious. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Usually they're compensating. She said, what's more important than confidence is courage. And I was like, oh my God. Confidence is created from repetitive success at doing something. You know you're gonna get the ball in the basket. You have confidence shooting. I know how to create branded products when I meet with a client and talk about how we're going to reposition their brand, I've got confidence. I have all of that stuff that I've been doing over and over and over again that's been successful that I can pull out of the suitcase and say, that's why I believe that I'm right. If you haven't done something before, how could you ever expect to have confidence doing it? Confidence comes after you've done it enough times successfully. So what's more important, especially in your 20s, is courage. Courage to take the first step before you have the success. 
Secret of Life by Danny Shapiro. That is gold. Gold. Um, we also have a mutual friend in Tina Roth Eisenberg. And, Swiss Miss. Yeah, she's incredible. And we had a conversation once about confidence, and she said, your confidence is about yourself, but enthusiasm is about other things and other people, and how much more sort of joyful yeah. that is to be to be enthusiastic. How much how much do you how much weight do you put on sort of energy and positivity? You already mentioned sort of you know growth mindset as something that is an that is a thing that you're developing in this phase of your life. It sounds powerful. Talk to me about like the positivity and 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 growth mindset and just how you think about those things and how you might give some advice to some young folks or younger folks or I, old folks. Old folks. <laughs> yeah. Well, when hiring, I one of the things that was really wonderful about having had Sterling um, acquired by Omnicom was Omnicom University. So Omnicom University was started by a man within Omnicom called Tom Watson. It's now being run by a woman named Janet Riccio. She's a genius. They, they take the, the senior execs and they bring them to Babson College, which is the number one entrepreneurial college in the, in the, probably in the world, certainly in the country. And a lot of Harvard uh, Business School professors are there as well teaching. One of the most important things that I learned while taking, I took numerous classes, numerous programs, um, was that you hire for attitude and you train the skill with young people, you know, with people that are entry level or thereabouts. Because the notion of being somebody that is curious, somebody that is open, somebody that is willing to learn is is untrainable. Yeah. It really is. So Simon Williams, my partner, told me something very early on in our tenure together that I've never forgotten. And I'll share this because I think this is something really true about the way to consider your attitude. He always asks, he said there are two kinds of people in the world, generators and drains. Generators are people that come into a room with energy and enthusiasm and passion and curiosity and tend to make the mood more vibrant. The, the um, drains are the people that come into the room and there's something always wrong, temperature's not right, something's missing, something isn't perfect, and they bring the energy down. What kind of person are you? If you think you're a drain, you probably are. What do you give it? What's the advice to those people? Like right now, there are people who just had an aha, oh shit moment. Why are you so afraid to show your enthusiasm? I don't think that people are born miserable. Sometimes it's bad parenting, sometimes it's bad circumstances, but don't let that sabotage your life. You can live with whatever self-loathing you might have and not have to inflict it on others. Most people, when they're complaining, are just relieving the tension that they feel about a certain circumstance without realizing that what they're doing is creating an atmosphere of toxin, of toxic. Mm -hmm. And all you're doing when you complain is relieving your own pain and then you're dumping it onto others. 
Nobody wants to really be around people like that. That's what that drain is. So ask yourself, why do you need to expend that energy in that way? Why do you need to inflict the pain that you're experiencing and the relief that you get by dumping it out on others? And I think if you look at it from that perspective, it changes your need to, to do it. You still might feel it, but you don't have to necessarily inflict it. I feel like I'm, this is a, an amazing therapy session for, <laughs> I mean, for, for me sitting here, but in, uh, I feel like that's one of my favorite things about Creative Live is helping other people realize their dreams and career and hobby and life. And there's, a, you know, we have something like 10 million students and when you get sort of that many inputs, you start to see a pattern. And the part that you said, which resonated so deep with me is, people cut themselves off the knees before they've even started. I know, and that's why I, and that's why I, I need to teach these classes because I did that. Mm -hmm. I did that. I've spent more than half my life doing that. And if I can help somebody else avoid that journey in that way and be able to live wholehearted and to be able to consider the possibilities that they can do whatever they want if they want it badly enough and if they're willing to really work hard, then what, what else is there? You know, that's why probably Milton said this is the most important thing because that becomes something that does enrich the world. I'm trying to be sensitive to your time. I could. I'm cool. I'm I, cool. I, I secretly handcuffed myself to you, <laughs> so you're not leaving. We're going <laughs> to talk here the next ten hours. Um, no, I, I thought that we might spend just a couple of minutes before we let you get on the way to your party. Um, are there some things? Just what would you what would you consider a couple of life lessons that we haven't covered in? in a, in a one-liner fashion? Like what's a life lesson that you feel like you've told students before or that you've realized yourself um, can be something that you say every day or I know there's a handful of them. I can feel it inside of <laughs> you. So. I have so many. Yeah, um, well, for students or for young people that are looking to sort of make their way into the world, I will tell them there's no such thing as being a people person in the great scheme of um, characteristics. Nobody cares if you're a people person. And when I ask students, well, what, what, why is the reason somebody should hire you? Well, I'm a real people person. I'm a real hard worker. No, those are table stakes. Those are things that you have to be in order to exist in the world with others. With other people. <laughs> right? <laughs> So what is the benefit for somebody to hire you? What People are giving you money to do this thing that you want to do or that you're trained to do or that you love. What are you giving them in return? What is the benefit that somebody will receive in hiring you? They're not hiring you for any altruistic purpose. They want to return on that investment. So what is the benefit that you can provide? If you can define what it is that you will bring that no one else could bring quite in the same way, then chances are you will have a competitive edge in an interview. So that's the first thing. And then for anybody that's feeling stuck and wants to create something on their own, 
or to create something more than what they're doing at their day job. I say create something that you self-generate. Make something on your own and put it out there. Stefan Sagmeister always says, don't create, don't create a portfolio for a job. Create the portfolio you want for the job you want. So you have to make your own work in a lot of, in a lot of cases. And people go, oh, I'm too busy. Well, my other big moment that I will, my other big quote that I say all the time is, busy is a decision. If you want to do something really badly, then you don't find the time. You make the time. And this is something I learned from Maria Popova. You have to make the time to do the things that you really want to do. If you say you're too busy, then look at what it is that's keeping you too busy. Are you spending too much time watching Game of Thrones? Are you spending too much time puttering around your house and not really concentrating on what is important to you? Chances are if you're not doing it, it's not a priority. You don't want it badly enough. So be honest with yourself then. You don't want to be telling yourself that you want to be doing something as a way to feel less embarrassment about the fact that you're not doing it. I, I saw something recently and I'm, I'm kicking myself right now. It is so in line with that. I'm, I, I know the thing, I'm just trying to attribute it properly and I'm, because I can't, I'm just gonna go there. It was, it's basically the, exactly the same. You said busy isn't busy, busy is a lack of priority. Right. So try substituting the words when you say I don't have time. Just try inserting the words it's just not a priority. Exactly. So when your your daughter asks you to help with her homework, like, oh, sorry, honey, I'm too busy. Sorry, honey, it's not a lack of priority. Or it's a, it's a lack of priority for right. me. Right. It's not a priority. Right. And see how that feels. Exactly. And that's the real shit. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's literally what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, Shonda Rhimes said that in her TED Talk, too, about playing with her daughters and how she would be like, I'm too busy. And then she'd sit down and play with them. And she realized that all they wanted was like five minutes. Just get started. Just started. Oh, the other one that I'll leave you with is a fortune cookie. Mm, a fortune good. cookie. This is... This is so good, I've kept it taped <laughs> to my laptop. Avoid compulsively making things worse. Wow. <laughs> wow. Right? Wow. And how often do we do that? Things are bad, and we just do a pylon of everything that's bad. Let's globalize everything that's bad so we can feel even worse. Wow. Sometimes you just feel bad, let yourself feel bad, and it'll pass, just like hunger passes or just like anything passes. We're regulation machines. So avoid compulsively making things worse. I'm, I was classic at that, making things worse. Things are bad, let's just make them worse. Thank you so much. I am so excited for those folks at home who this show is over for you right now. I'm about to spend the next 48 hours with this human. I couldn't be happier. Thank you so much for oh, being on the show. You. My pleasure. We're going to clip as much of this stuff out as we can and share it. You're welcome to share any of it in your channels and the thank print you. channels and, and here on Creative Live and my stuff. So thank you so much. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet. 
on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.